Good morning. It's great to see y'all today. Uh, yesterday I was in, uh, well, near my hometown, uh, I, a guy I grew up with. Literally, we were born two days apart and grew up less than a mile from each other. So my oldest friend, his daughter was getting married yesterday and they asked me to do the wedding. And uh, it's beautiful, but the problem was she chose to get married at 4 p.m. outside. Yeah. Big old oak tree, so there was some shade, but let me tell you, if, if you've lived here for long, you know it was hot. We were sweating really good. So I got up and uh, got things started by saying, folks, this is going to be a short wedding and a long marriage. And I kept my part of that bargain. It was over in 15 minutes, which I think is some kind of land speed record. Nobody complained. Everybody was like, you are doing good. So uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be in God's house and we're wrapping up today, as Nathan said, our, our series in the book of Exodus. I want you to imagine that you know the world's greatest chef. The, the best food you've ever eaten is at this guy's restaurant. And every time you go in, the thing you have this time is better than the thing you had last time. And every time you think, okay, it can't get any better, it does. Now imagine you get to know this guy and you get to be friends with him. And you come to him one day and you say, I've got this friend who's never really had good food. I want to treat her to a meal here. Um, would, you, would you help me out with that? And the guy says, absolutely. So, uh, I, in fact, I'll just close down the whole restaurant. You just bring it. It'll be the two of you and me, and I'll make the best meal she's ever had in her life. So tell me, where's she from? Where all has she lived? What is she like? What is she not like? I want to make something that's tailored to her needs and her tastes. And so you figure that out. Uh, so the, the appointed night comes and you bring your friend and, and sure, true to his word, the, the restaurant is dark except for this one table with candles. You sit down and he comes out in his apron, introduces himself. He says, listen, I am going to feed you the best food you've ever had in your life. This is the best meal I've ever made. It's five courses. It's incredible. It is tailored to your tastes and I can't wait to share it with you. Now imagine your friend says, well, actually, I, I, I kind of feel like a cheeseburger. You got any cheeseburgers? You got any of that special sauce? Because I really like Big Macs. You got any of that, you know, that stuff, whatever it is, uh, you know, and those, those paper-thin meat patties that you can see the sun through, and, you know, one of those buns that was baked when Gerald Ford was president. And, you know, just for the heck of it, why not shove a third bun in there? Because, you know, who, who doesn't like more stale bread on their burger? And, and imagine just the shock on his face. Imagine how mad you're going to be if this is your if you're a, a young man and this is your girlfriend, she's your ex-girlfriend at the end of that night, right? I mean, you, you're not going to put up with that. But at the same time, you're going to be very sad for her. You're going to think, you don't know what you're missing. You're, you're giving up an amazing experience for something that doesn't really satisfy. Now, I know this illustration may not work for everybody because obviously some of you like Big Macs. They keep selling those wretched things over and over again. But what I'm trying to say to you is, I'm your friend. And I fear that there's a lot of you, a lot of Christians, especially in this country, who never really experience the glory of God, who never really see him for all that he is. And I'm not, I'm not casting, casting aspersions on your, on, your, uh, on your spirituality, your salvation. I mean, there probably are people in this room, there are in every church, who've never really been saved and don't yet know it. And I, if you're one of those people, I hope today's the day you recognize I need the grace of God. I don't just need to go to church and score points in the sky. I need the grace of God to save me. And today's your day of salvation. But I, I believe that most of you have crossed that threshold. You are followers of Jesus. 
But I believe a lot of you don't really know what it is to seek God's glory, to see his face and experience that. So you're like people who've been sitting in the kitchen while the world's greatest chef is preparing a feast and you're too full on Big Macs to enjoy it. It doesn't even look good to you. You're not even drawn to it because of what your stomach is full of. And I'm telling you, you're missing out. Today, I wanna, what I want to do is I want to answer two questions for you. How do we seek God's glory and, and what happens to us when we see his glory? So we're in here at the end of the book of Exodus. The last six chapters, we're not going to cover. The, those are the word of God, but they're not narrative passages. They're just about the Israelites fulfilling that God's command to build the tabernacle and start worshiping him. So the story, the actual story of Exodus ends in chapter 34, and that's what we're going to cover. Now, last week, we saw God say to the Israelites, you have a chance to be my people, my treasured possession, my holy nation, my, my kingdom of priests, and the Israelites rejected him. Remember, the book of Exodus is not just the story of a bunch of slaves getting set free. It's God introducing himself to the world. He's saying, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, I can save you. I can rescue you. That's what I do. That's all I do. And God is giving Israel the, the chance to be the conduit through which he rescues the whole world. You will represent me before the world. You will draw others to yourself and to me, and they will be saved. And Israel last week said, no, that's okay. We'll take this golden calf instead. And remember, Moses comes down the mountain and he shatters the tablets of the covenant saying, you have broken this faith with God. You've rejected the opportunity of all time. And now we're about to find out that God is even more gracious than Moses thought he was. So we pick up chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people and I will consume you on the way. What God is offering Israel is interesting. Remember, the reason they made the golden calf was they wanted to get to the promised land on their own terms. Moses was up on the mountain talking to God. It had been almost six weeks, and they lost patience. They lost faith. They didn't want a God who came and went at his pleasure. They didn't want a God whose ways were higher, whose thoughts were greater. They wanted a God they could control, a golden calf a good luck charm, who could just go with them wherever they went. When they were ready to leave, he would leave with them. They wanted success without a relationship with the Lord. And that's what God offers them here. He says, I'm giving you exactly what you want. So, so go, just go right across the desert, take a couple weeks, cross the Jordan. When you get there, I will have driven the people out of the land. You'll find empty cities that you can just move into, towers and buildings and silos full of grain. You'll find, you'll find houses to live in that you didn't build. You'll find gardens you didn't plant ready to be harvested. You'll find animals ready to be slaughtered and cooked over the fire. You didn't raise them. They're yours, free of charge. All this wealth, all this prosperity, it's yours. I just won't be with you because that's what you want, right? I mean, there are a lot of you here this morning. If you were honest with yourself, you would, 
You think it would be very hard if God came to you and said, I will give you the life you've always wanted, the body you want, the car, the, the house, the job, the, the relationships, the success, everything you want, I just won't go with you so you don't go to church anymore, so you don't read the Bible anymore, so you don't have the Holy Spirit transforming you day by day. You don't have those little divine appointments every day that I'm setting for you to interact with people and lead them to me, these transforming relationships that, that we've been encouraging you to get involved in. You're not going to have any of that anymore. You just get the things you want. And there's a part of you that that's appealing to. There's a part of me that's appealing to because we have a sin nature. And so when God says that and he gives Moses that word, Moses is pretty sure the people are going to say, okay, good, that's what we wanted anyway. But to his surprise, the people say, no, we can't go with God, without God. We can't. We don't want to take another step. In fact, they mourn. They strip off the, the outer accoutrements of their success, the, the jewelry, the loot they took from Egypt. They drop it on the ground. They say, Lord, we'd rather die right here than go any further without you. And that's true repentance. That's what God, that's what God has called us to do, to repent of our sins, to say to God, Lord, I am, I am taking seriously, I am calling out what I've done, and I never want to go that direction again, so change me. And Moses, to his surprise, hears this word from his people, goes back to God with that word, and here's what he says to the Lord, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. So let's answer that first question. How do we seek God's glory? We got to answer another question first. What do I mean when we say the glory of God? What is God's glory? John Piper, preacher and theologian, has a pretty good definition. He says, God's glory is the infinite beauty of his manifold perfections. Doesn't that sound good? I wish I'd come up with that myself. But what does it actually mean? So here's my humble paraphrase of John Piper's definition. I believe God's glory is his greatness on full display. It is when you see or experience something in God that you go, oh, now I get it. Now this is why he's so wonderful. Uh, several years ago, I saw my niece, Brooklyn, run for the first time. She's the daughter of my brother. My brother was a great athlete. I was the one who loved sports. He was the one that was actually good at them. Uh, and, and then he married a, a, a young woman who was a fantastic athlete too. So they have this daughter who's good at everything. She's the point guard on the basketball team, and she's all district in volleyball and cross country and back when she played softball, softball, but her best sport is track. She's going to be a senior this year, but the first time I ever saw her run, she was an eighth grader. And my brother and my dad had been telling me, you've got to come see her run. She's really good. So I drove home actually to, to Hallettsville for the district meet of, of their district, and, and I watched her run the quarter mile. She ran several things, but that was the first time I ever saw her run. One lap around the track, all the girls get down there, eighth grade girls getting in their starting blocks. They're staggered out across the track. My niece, Brooklyn, is this little bitty blonde girl. She's by far the smallest girl on the track. She is not the most impressive looking from a distance in terms of athleticism. But when the gun goes off and she takes off from those starting blocks, she rounds that first corner. And then I said, wow, because what I saw was 
All the other girls suddenly looked like they were running in mud. And Brooklyn looked like she was on roller skates going downhill. She just took off. And my brother and my dad were like, yeah, we told you. And she kept that lead the whole way around and just blew the field away. Now, you know what that's like. You may not know how, what it's like to win a quarter mile. I don't either. But you know what it's like to witness something or experience something that just kind of takes your breath away. And you go, oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Like, for instance, some of you are big music fans. And you heard someone on the radio or, or on, on Pandora or Spotify or whatever. And then you said, I think I'll go to that concert. You bought the ticket to the concert, you sat down, and the moment that artist began to sing, you went, oh my goodness, so much better in person. Or you saw pictures online, maybe one of your friends went to, on vacation to some beautiful place, and you thought, hey, we should go there too. So you made the drive, or you got on the airplane, and you got there, and you got out of your car, and you looked around, and you thought, oh, this, the pictures didn't do it justice. This is the most beautiful place ever. I didn't know there could be a place like this on earth. Imagine a relationship that's just a consistent series of experiences like that, just wow moments. And the more you get to know this person, the more you see what's wonderful about them. You see beauty, you see skill, you see power, you see mercy, you see grace, you see love like you never imagined. And that's the glory of God. That's what it is to seek God's glory. So when Moses says, show me your glory, he's saying, I want to know everything there is to know about you. Remember, this is the one, Moses is the guy who's been on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's been meeting with God on a regular basis in this little tent that he placed outside the camp of Israel. And they've been meeting face to face. And Moses says, it's not enough, Lord. I want to know more. I want it all. Just show me your glory. And God's answer is interesting. He says, you can't see it all, Moses. You're not ready. I will, I will cover you with my hand. You climb up on the rock, I will cover you with my hand because you can't see my face. But then when I pass, I'll let go so you can see my back. And what we expect is that we're about to hear this physical description of that take place. Moses does what God says. He climbs up on top of the rock and he waits. And we think there's going to be this moment where it says this great big hand reached out of the sky and covered up Moses on the rock, and then he left it, let it go, and you see this big muscular back retreating into the distance, right? But instead, here's what happens. Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So notice, Moses didn't see anything. He didn't see anything different. There's no physical description of God because Moses didn't see anything. Instead, he heard. He heard words that are basically the Old Testament version of John 3.16. This, this is the passage that the Old Testament prophets and David in his Psalms repeated over and over again. This is the name of the Lord. He heard God say, you want to see my glory? Let me tell you where you can find it. You see my glory whenever you experience my mercy, my grace, my patience, my faithfulness, my righteousness, my never-failing love. That's my glory. 
So when you come to me and you've broken, broken the law and, and your, your heart is broken and your, your, your life is broken, I will put you back on your feet and I will restore you and I will forgive you and that's my glory. And when you see someone who is brokenhearted because they've fallen astray, they've, they've run off the rails and destroyed their life and I set them up and make them a new person and you look at them and you think, you don't even look like the same guy. That's my glory. That's what I do. And when you go out into the world and all through your day, you're experiencing these little moments of grace, a good meal, a moment of beauty and, and, and majesty in the world, or a, a, a good laughter or an embrace from someone you love, and you recognize that's a gift from me, and you praise me for it, then that's my glory. But when you see the evil get punished, when you see murderers brought to justice, when you see criminals stopped in the act, when you see sinners who are brought to a, a, an absolute reckoning for what they've done, that's my glory too, because I punish the guilty. See, the more you walk with me, Moses, the more you look for it, the more you're going to see my glory. And when you act this way, when it's your desire to see my glory, you're going to bring others to me as well. So to seek God's glory, here's what it means. It means anytime you go out of your way to make knowing him better, your ultimate goal. So when you come to church on Sunday morning, you're not seeking God's glory if you're just here checking off a box. But if you're meaning the words that you sing, if you're literally quieting your heart and saying, God, speak to me and show me the way, then you're seeking God's glory. When you wake up in the morning and you say, okay, I'm not even gonna look at my phone. I'm not gonna turn on the news. I'm just gonna go straight to the word of God and read it and ask him to speak to me. You're seeking God's glory. When you pray and you say, okay, Lord, I've got all these other things that are on my mind and I know you wanna hear them because I know you care about them too. But first, I wanna pray about the things that matter to you. You're seeking God's glory. When you're out there in the world and you're saying, Lord, help me to see every single person through your eyes. And when I see someone who's in need, Help me to meet that need. You're seeking God's glory. You're saying, show me, Lord, your mercy, your grace, your power, your ability, your skill, your beauty, your love before me. Back in the 1600s, the Scottish Presbyterian Church decided we need to create a document that sums up the Christian faith. Now, Baptists don't do this kind of thing. Baptists are non-creedal people. We don't write down our beliefs. We just say it's in the word of God. Of course, we have the Baptist faith and message. I'm not sure what the difference is between that and a creed, but oh well. But the Presbyterians came up with this document that they called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 107 questions and answers, so that they could hand that to someone and say, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here you go. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism, cried an achievement. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? So yesterday at the wedding, or actually Friday at the rehearsal, I look out, and this is a, a wedding party of young people, right? Because only young people have a wedding at 4 p.m. in the summertime in June outside. And, and I, I look at these groomsmen, and I'm like, okay, these guys are trouble. So the wedding planner says, do you have anything to say? And I said, yeah, guys, you have one job. You have one job and one job only. That is to do everything you can to make tomorrow go exactly the way she wants it to go. And I pointed to the bride. And the groom's like, yeah. And I said, you know, she's never going to get married again. This is it. This is her wedding day. It's not your time to be funny. It's not your time to pull pranks. 
It's not your time to be the center of attention. It's your job to show up on time, escort your girl to the right spot, and then get out of the way and shut up and let her have the attention. And the groom walked over to me and he said, thank you for saying that. What is our one job? According to the Scottish Presbyterians, our one job is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I believe the Presbyterians got it right. If you're a Presbyterian, you might say, well, of course, we were predestined to do so. But (laughs) I think what they're saying is the purpose of life is to enjoy the feast and to bring others with us. That's it. That's what it is to seek God's glory. And then second question, what happens to us when we see God's glory? The short answer is it changes us. You go through the Bible, you read it from cover to cover, and every single time a human being interacts with God, really experiences his presence, and it can be someone devout as, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, it can be someone as wicked as Balaam, the false prophet. But whoever they are, when they, come, when they encounter God, they walk away changed. But how does it change us? There are three ways seeing God's glory changes us. Number one, we begin to put others ahead of ourselves. Remember in chapter three, at the beginning of the story, when God comes to Moses and says, I want you to be my rescuer. I want you to go into Egypt and rescue my people, lead them out to safety. What does Moses say? I can't do that, Lord. He comes up with excuse after excuse. He does not want to follow God's plan. He does not want to sacrifice his comfortable existence for this risk this hardship. But here, he's changed. Remember last week, what does Moses say to God? Moses says, Lord, the people have rejected you. And I know, I know you can't bring them in, but I'm asking you, punish me instead. Blot my name out of your book so that your people can be forgiven. Now, who does that? What accounts for this change in Moses' life? He's been with God. He's been walking with God ever since chapter 3, and it has changed him into a person who loves others more than himself. And by the way, keep in mind, this all started when Moses was 80 years old. So nobody has an excuse. Nobody can say, well, you know, I was raised in a family that was really hard, and so I can't really be that kind of person. You can't say, I'm just really a stubborn guy by nature. God can change you. You can't even say, I'm too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. God can do anything. And he can make you new if you want to be changed. You have to seek his glory. Second thing, second way he changes us is we start to care more about God's mission than our own wish list. I want you to pay attention to something in chapter 33, verse 16, when Moses is praying to God and saying, Lord, will you take us back? One of the things he says is, how else are we going to be distinct? How else are we going to be different from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the reason he prays that is he knows what God's plan is because God has told him, I want you to be my treasured possession, my royal priesthood, my holy nation. In other words, I want you, Israel, this tiny little nation about the size of New Jersey, way smaller than the state of Texas, tiny, under-resourced nation, you're going to be so different from the other countries of the world and so blessed because of it that all other nations are going to be drawn to you so that they'll know about me. In other words, 
You're going to be the conduit through which I save humanity. And Moses says, Lord, I know that can't happen if we don't live a life that's distinct, that's different. And we can't live a life that's distinct and different unless you're with us. See, he doesn't say, Lord, don't abandon us because if you do, we're going to fail. Don't abandon us because if you do, we're going to get into trouble and kill ourselves. That's also true. He's more concerned, though, with God's plan to rescue the world than he is with his own safety, than his own people's success. And that doesn't happen naturally. I mean, we go to the Lord in prayer, and what are we praying about? We're praying about our health. We're praying about God, keep our kids safe. We're praying about, Lord, let me, let me not lose my job. Lord, help me find a new job. Those are all fine things. But when we see God's glory, we start to pray other things too. We start to pray, Lord, bless, bless the, the people of God in that part of the world where they're being persecuted. Bless, bless the Harringtons down in Costa Rica and the work they're doing there. And, and bless the Fleetwoods uh, down in Colombia and the way they're reaching people with the gospel over there. And, and Lord, help help bring about revival in our land and bless this other church in my community because I know they're struggling and bless this family. And bless. You start to care about the things that matter to God and not just the things that matter to you. And there's a third difference. God changes us in this way. When we see his glory, we begin to want more of him. See, God is the only food that absolutely satisfies and leaves you hungry for more at the same time. It's amazing. Nothing else does that. So why does Moses, in the middle of his prayer to God, say, Lord, show me your glory? It's, how can he ask such an audacious thing? I think I know the answer. See, Moses had just gone to God and said, okay, Lord, the people are asking your forgiveness. Please forget what we've done and make us your people again. But Moses doesn't think God's going to say yes. Because why would he? Well, how would God take back the people who couldn't even stay faithful to him for six weeks? He's a righteous God. He can start over with someone different. If he wants to, he can create a new people from scratch. Why would God take them back? Moses is praying, but he doesn't think God's going to say yes. And when God just immediately says, I will do everything you've asked. You're my people again. I will go with you. Moses is blown away. Wow, God, I had no idea your grace was that great. What else don't I know? Please show me your glory. Moses had been on top of the mountain for 40 days and nights. He'd been in the tent of meeting every day, but he wanted more. The glory of God makes you hungry for more. You never get fully satisfied. You're constantly seeking more. And you might say, well, Jeff, I'm not there. Honestly, it's, it's, it's an accomplishment for me just to get to church and to stay awake that long. If I open the Bible, it's two or three sentences in, and I'm already, my, my mind's wandering. If I'm trying to pray, I can go maybe five minutes before I start thinking about, you know, the baseball game or what I'm eating for lunch. What do I do, Jeff? Well, I'm with you. I wasn't born. I didn't come out of the womb seeking Jesus. You have to come to the Lord and confess and just say, Lord, I'm not hungry for you, but I want to be because I know you're what satisfies. So change my tastes. Show me who you are. Show me, give me a little taste of your glory so that I can know what I'm missing. And he will. If that's the prayer of your heart, if that's something you pray daily, Lord, show me your glory, he will. And once you taste and see, you'll want more. Now, there are two 
little details I want to touch on and then I'm done. Two confusing details. First of all, why does God say to Moses, I will show you my back but not my face and then not show him anything but instead tell him? Understand, the word face, in fact, all, all humanistic characteristics of God, all physical characteristics of God are just symbolism. God does not have a body. He is spirit. When God says, see my face, he's talking about his glory. Face and glory are the same thing. God's saying to Moses, you can't see all of it. I I know you want to know me, and you will, but you can't get it all today. You have to wait. The second thing, the second thing that bothers us is when God's passing by Moses and he's saying his name, there's a contradiction there. He says, I am absolutely forgiving. Every, Every sinner will be forgiven. But he also says, every sin will be absolutely punished. Nobody gets away with anything. Now, how is that possible? Those two things contradict each other. If God is perfectly righteous and punishes every sin, then nobody's forgiven. If God forgives every sin, then nobody gets punished. So how does God work this out? Well, we see it in the book of John. The Gospel of John, above all of the books of the Bible, is concerned with the glory of God. You may remember the book of John starts with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was with God, and He created all things. Without Him, anything, nothing was created that was created. So we know He's talking about God there when He says the Word. And then in verse 14, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's talking about who? Jesus. Yeah, we're in church. The answer is usually Jesus. Yeah. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what is he saying? He's saying when Jesus showed up on earth, He was God's glory in human form. We beheld His glory. That means the people who saw Jesus face to face saw God's glory in greater measure than even Moses did on that day in the rock. He was God's glory walking around on two feet. Then, later on in the book, in chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, now you're really going to see the glory in its ultimate sense. The glory of God is about to be revealed like it's never been revealed before. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the Father chiming in and agreeing with the Son, saying, yeah, I'm about to show the whole world my glory, like I've never shown it before. So pay attention. And then Jesus in verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is saying, my ultimate glory is in the way that I die. The ultimate sign of God's glory. God's glory is most ultimately seen in the cross of Calvary. Because there... Every sin was fully punished. God's righteous wrath was poured out on every sin that's ever been committed, yours and mine, and every sin that's ever been committed. And every sinner who wants it was forgiven because Jesus took our place. That's the glory of God. 
That is the ultimate symbol of who God is. And so let me ask you again. You're sitting in the kitchen. The Lord is preparing a feast for you. Are you really going to stuff your face with what doesn't satisfy? Are you really going to devote your life to chasing after things that don't fill you, that turn your stomach, that don't nourish you? The feast is there. Won't you seek his glory?